0: If you have your copy of scripture, go ahead and turn to Genesis chapter 2. You'll find that on page 2 if you're using the church Bible. Genesis chapter 2 this morning. We're picking up where we left off two weeks ago. and We are going to begin in verse 4 and read down to verse 17. Genesis 2, 4 through 17. And we are looking at, um, in this series, we are looking at creation and new creation and how the Bible is an organic whole and how Genesis and Revelation are bookends and how uh, understanding the Bible is dependent on understanding what God did in creation at the beginning. And so we are picking up in our study now looking at Genesis 2, 4 through 17. I know you're going to find it helpful to have your own copy open reading along with me. And before we do again, let's pray and let's ask for the Lord to bless the reading and the preaching of his word. Father in heaven, we acknowledge that you are the creator who has spoken and you are the redeemer, Lord Jesus, who has redeemed us and who has spoken words of grace and mercy and new creation into our lives and you have made us a part of your new creation. You have raised us up from spiritual death unto spiritual life. We pray that you would give us a greater understanding of what you have done, of where we've come from, of how far we have fallen, and of how far you have brought us by your grace. Lord Jesus, we pray that we would know more of the sweetness of your grace, and we would have great hope and great joy as we anticipate the day of consummation and the day that you will bring about the new heavens and the new earth wherein righteousness dwells. We pray, our God, that you would give us great understanding this morning, and that you would draw us closer to yourself, and that you would build us up in faith, and that we would leave this place rejoicing in the Lord Jesus. We pray these things in his name. Amen. Genesis 2, beginning in verse 4, uh, Moses has finished giving the broad view of creation, the overview, and now he says, These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, when no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold, and the gold of that land is good. Delam and Onyx Stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gion. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. The grass withers, the flower fades. But the word of God endures forever. Well, one of my favorite. Uh, cinematic devices in movies is, uh, and and it seems like every 20th movie that's made has something along these lines where a satellite is spinning around the earth and it's taking a wide view of the earth and you've seen these movies. And then as it slows down and then it begins to focus in on one spot on earth and the rest of the movie takes place in that spot. And Hollywood didn't invent that, God invented that. Because Genesis 1 is the big, broad view of creation. It is the satellite view of creation. God has shown us in Genesis 1, 1 to 2, 4, how he made all things, how he spoke all things into existence, how he did it progressively, how he did it to put man as the Lord of the lower world. And it is the big, broad satellite view. And now, in this passage in front of us, the satellite zooms in and from Genesis 2.4 to the end of the Bible, the focus is what God is doing with man, what God is doing specifically with man. It is, the, it is the zoom angle lens. It is focused on what God is doing here first, as we'll see this morning in the Garden of Eden, and then after the fall, what God is doing to bring man back to himself, and what God has done throughout all of redemptive history, and then ultimately how God is going to bring man back into paradise. the work of Jesus Christ. And that's that's the rest of the Bible. From Genesis 2-4 on, the rest of the Bible is specifically focused on what God is doing with man who has rebelled against him, who needs redemption, who will be brought again to a new creation, and how God's purposes for man will not fail. And what we see, and I think it'll be helpful for us to consider just two things this morning. First is that Genesis 2, 4 through 17 is telling us about the nature of the Garden of Eden, and that's really sacred space. So you might say it's the nature of sacred space, and then the purpose of God for man in sacred space. We talked the last time we were together, we talked about sacred time, that God created time and space. That's Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, time, the heavens and the earth, space. And then God sets apart a specific portion of that time for himself to be holy. That is the Lord's Day. He sets apart one in seven. That's sacred time. And now what Moses tells us is that he creates sacred space. He sets apart a specific place where he's going to put man. And in a very real sense, the Garden of Eden can only be understood if we understand the temple and the purposes of God in dwelling with his people in the sanctuary, in the sacred space of Eden at the beginning, and ultimately in his church in the new heavens and the new earth at the end of the Bible. And so we're going to look this morning first at the nature of the Garden of Eden, sacred space, and then we're going to look at the purpose of God for man in that sacred space. We'll notice that Moses seems to be giving us what appears on the surface to be a second creation account. There have been theologians who have been divided over this for hundreds of years now over how we're to understand, is Genesis 1 giving us one creation account? Is Genesis 2 giving us a different creation account? Because in Genesis 1, it seems that the plants were created first, then man, and then some say, well, here it seems that it's saying God couldn't create plants because there wasn't any man, and I think it would help us to understand that what Genesis 2-4 is doing is showing us its, its recapitulation and it's showing us what God does with that focused view on man, contrary to him showing us the whole of what he did at creation in Genesis 1, 1 and following. And notice that Moses says, These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, when no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land. Then the Lord God formed the man, of dust from the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. Now, it's interesting, the first thing that Moses would draw our attention to is that God didn't create Adam in the garden. Now, everything was good. Genesis 1 tells us everything had God's blessing stamped on it. But God created man out of the dust of the ground, an insignificant and unvaluable thing. The, The raw stuff out of which we are made is insignificant and invaluable. That's to remind man of his creatureliness and that in and of himself, he is not worth anything in and of himself, that we in and of ourselves, are just dust. We are dust. From dust you are, to dust you will return. And every time every one of our loved ones dies, we see them go into the ground out of which man was made. God didn't create Adam out of some special place in Eden with special materials and, and wonderfully blessed and valuable things. He didn't create him um, it, it, with, with this stellar, magnificent... Uh, material. He created him out of the dust. But then, we're told that God created a special place, a dwelling place, a sacred place, a place of special blessing, and He put man in that place, that that special place. Jonathan Edwards actually has an interesting thought as he considers creation and new creation with regard to man being made outside of the garden and then being put in the garden. And he said, "There's an analogy there that after the fall." man is brought forth in the wilderness of this world, but when he's redeemed in the new creation, he's brought to paradise. He's he's brought into paradise by God's grace in Jesus Christ. I love that. Outside the garden, brought into the garden. After the fall, men and women are outside of the garden. We have rebelled, we have been exiled out of Eden. We are in the wilderness of this barren world and our souls are a dry and barren, sinful, depraved, barren wilderness, and yet God brings us into his garden. And so I think that what Moses is telling us here is that God intends blessing. God intends blessing for his image bearer. God wants to show Adam that he intended something for him that he didn't intend for any of the other creatures in that way, that God created man in order to have fellowship with man. We talked about that. Sacred time was the time in which God and man would have fellowship. Sacred space is the place in which God and man would have fellowship. It is the temple. It is the place of special blessing. I love this. Matthew Henry said, speaking about man being made outside of paradise, man was made out of paradise for after God had formed him, he put him into the garden. He was made of common clay, not of paradise dust he lived out of Eden before he lived in it, that he might see all the comforts of his paradise state owing to God's free grace. I think that's a profound point. That he might see all the comforts of his paradise state owing to God's free grace. Adam would have known he didn't deserve to be in the garden, that he was made from the dust, and that God by his favor put him in the place of richest blessing adam could not plead a tenant right to the garden for he was not born upon the premises nor had anything but what he received all boasting was hereby forever excluded i think that's remarkable because ever since the fall men have been trying to build eden on earth we see that with lot picking the most well-watered place a little later in this book and he ends up in Sodom and Gomorrah and it says it was well watered like the garden of God. And that what man has been trying to do is to reproduce. And the more men reproduce beauty and, and these seeming garden sanctuaries, the more boasting they tend to attribute to what their hands have done. Nebuchadnezzar is the supreme example. He had the hanging gardens. He was trying to reproduce and God made him eat grass to humble him, Adam had no reason to boast. Adam was by God's special favor put in this place of supreme blessing. God had decided, "I will plant." He didn't dig holes and plant trees. He, he it shows intention. His intention was that he would create a place of special blessing. And you know, I, I our minds, as I thought about this, and I've thought for decades about what Eden would have been like. Our minds can't even conceive of what the garden in Eden would have looked like. By the way, Eden is a place, the garden is a place in Eden. Um, We'll talk about that in a minute. But God would have planted the most magnificent dwelling place and habitation. And, And in this sense, the nature of the garden was showing the blessing of God and the beauty of God. It was a reflection of his blessing and his beauty. It was saying that God is the good God who is full of, beauty and glory and blessing he is not a tyrant he is not austere you know there's even something i think when when men get turned inward oftentimes they lose a love of beauty and they lose a love of aesthetics and they become very cold and industrial and there's something that's so ungodlike about that there's something so ungodlike about cold non beautiful creations and buildings there's something there's something about beauty even now in this fallen world where God has left and and John Calvin makes this point God has still left a semblance of beauty in this world though it was nothing like the Garden of Eden would have had to, to show that he is still a God full of goodness and bounty and that there is there is hope of restoration and there is hope of entering into something better and something higher. And so the garden was the place of God's special blessing for man. But the garden was also a reflection of heaven, and this is very important for us to get. We, we can't miss this. What God did was he made a model of heaven on earth with the Garden of Eden. We often talk about people trying to make heaven on earth. It's because God, one time, this has happened, one time, God made heaven on earth, and it was the Garden of Eden. It was Eden. And it was a temple. It was the prototypical temple. You know, this is very interesting because if you're a Jew and you're reading this, and then as you're receiving this revelation from Moses, the mediator of the Old Covenant, and you're being told about our original habitation was this, this dwelling place with beautiful plants and trees, and then in redemptive history, God is promising to, re- to bring his people in redemption into a land flowing with milk and honey you should start to think okay that's that's reminiscent of a garden and then when the temple is built in the days of Solomon and and on the temple they carved pomegranates palm trees lilies and it was enshrined in cedar and gold and all those things that were in the garden you know this i don't know if you've ever read genesis 2 and you've wondered why does he tell them that gold and onyx were there because and do a word search. Onyx was used in the temple. Gold was used in the construction of the temple. And the, the botanical figures that were carved around the temple were showing that God, that was a stepping stone in him restoring what man lost in Eden, that Eden was the temple, it was the holy place. The garden of Eden was the most holy place. It was the inner sanctuary. It was where God said, in all his perfect holiness, I will dwell with man. Um, I love this. Jonathan Edwards, as he's thinking about the Garden of Eden being a reflection of of heaven itself and God creating a perfect type of heaven, he says, "...the place that man was introduced into when he was created out of this original dust into paradise was a garden of sweet delight and pleasure. It was a type of heaven." that place of glory that persons are brought into by redemption as is evident in that heaven is called paradise, Revelation 2.7 of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. It is a most evident allusion to the tree of life in the midst of the Garden of Eden. Man was not made in this garden, but was made in some more mean place and then brought and put into the garden as man in the new creation is brought into being in this earthly barren country and brought into the garden. And then he says that God will raise men of dust by the spiritual heavenly man, Jesus Christ, into that heavenly paradise, the state of sonship, after his body was raised from the grave or dust of the earth. And so you can see how even understanding the place of Eden and understanding the nature of Eden is essential to understanding what God's doing through the rest of the Bible. The rest of the Bible is paradise regained, Paradise lost, paradise regained. When Jesus hangs on the cross and he says to the thief, today you will be with me in paradise. He is telling him that he as the second Adam had regained paradise and that there was a heavenly temple, a dwelling place of God and men that he came to reconcile man to himself. It was a place of worship. This would have been the special place where Adam were not not meant to think that Adam couldn't have gone outside of the garden. There's no reason for us to think that God limited man to staying in the garden of Eden, but that the garden was the place where he would have gone to walk with God and commune with God and worship God. It was, it was sacred space. It was sacred space. Um, you and I know the story so well that Adam... And Eve disobeyed, and Adam, representing all of us, uh, lost the garden, brought sin and curse and death and misery and judgment. And yet, in God's marvelous wisdom and kindness and grace, God is ever working to restore that until Christ comes. And and He is the temple, His body. God dwell in Jesus perfectly. He's the temple. It wasn't a building. It was better than the garden he dwelt in jesus jesus is god in him dwells all the fullness of the godhead bodily the body the human nature of jesus was the temple and jesus said destroy this temple and in three days i will rebuild it and after he's raised up and the temple is raised up we are raised up with him and in the new covenant we become the temple the church god dwells in us Christ is formed in us. You know, there's a, marvelous, there's a marvelous description, I believe, of the church in the Song of so- Solomon, where uh, the beloved says that she's like a well-watered garden. That's the image, is that sh- the church is a garden temple. Would you imagine if you thought of yourself? That's what you are if you're in Christ. You are the dwelling place of God. You are to be a fruitful, well-watered, spiritually fruitful garden temple for God to dwell in. How that would change the way we think about ourselves, that God has, in a sense, replanted the Garden of Eden by building the church, by redeeming men and women in Jesus, by dwelling in them. And so the garden was the place of God's special blessing. The garden was a reflection of heaven. It was a temple. But then... Moses tells us a little bit about the purpose of God for man in that sacred space. It wasn't just to worship. There was more that God gave Adam to do. And notice that we're told, um, no sooner are we told that about the nature of the temple. Then in verse 15, we're told, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of the tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now, add to that that God has already told man back in Genesis 1.26, be fruitful and multiply and have dominion over every living thing. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female. He created them, and God blessed them, and God said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And here's the point. Man was given responsibility to exercise dominion over creation Man was given responsibility to populate the world. Man was given responsibility to work and to be fruitful in labors in the world. And man was given responsibility to protect, to guard, and to keep evil out. Now, Adam is in the garden. And God gives Adam these instructions in the garden. And the first thing that we have to see is that God's purpose for Adam, as the representative of all men, as the first Federal head, that's what we call him, federal head. He is the representative. What he does affected you and me. We fall because he fell. We are depraved because he fell. We sinned in him and fell with him, the old writers would say. And yet Adam had an original uh, it had an original purpose in the garden. And the first thing God intended for him was that the garden by Adam would be extended. God's purpose was that the garden would be extended. That essentially, if you could envision on earth, one tiny place on top of a mountain, by the way, the garden was on a mountain. I don't know if you knew that. Ezekiel, just like the temple was on a mountain. Ezekiel says, the garden of Eden on the holy mountain. It was a garden on a mountain, and if you could envision this place, this magnificent garden on the mountain, and God told Adam to dress it and to keep it and to multiply and to fill the earth and to subdue it, what he was essentially saying was that Adam, by obeying God, by worshiping, by not eating of the tree that God told him not to eat, by being obedient to all those creation mandates, was to turn the world into the garden. He was to expand the width and the length and the breadth of the temple. And as he multiplied and as he and Eve had children, if he had obeyed and he had withstood the test, the covenant of works and not eaten of the fruit that God told him not to eat, then that his descendants would have worshipped with him in that garden and they would have built and they would have used the materials in that garden and they would have extended it out. And essentially, here's the point, Adam would have brought about the new heavens and the new earth by his obedience. Adam would have turned the whole world into the garden. And we know, as we've already said, that man has failed. I love this quote. Sinclair Ferguson says, Adam was made to tend the garden and to expand the garden and to enjoy the garden. And the tragedy of his life is that he becomes part of the garden. That's the tragedy of the human situation. We end up part of the garden. From dust you came I took you out of nothing, and you shall tragically return to dust. There are two songwriters I really like right now, both of whom are not Christians, one of whom grew up in a Christian home and apostatized, and both have two of very interesting songs. One of them has a song with the refrain, bury me in a garden, because I'm just part of creation. Bury me in a garden. We've become part of the garden. The other... Who has walked away from the faith, has a song in which he says, "Um, I spent a year in the kingdom on my way through the garden. He's saying that this world is better than God's kingdom. Adam perverted everything. Now man is trying to establish for himself cities and places and security and lands. Psalm 49 speaks about the rich man with his plans and He thinks that he names his possessions and his lands after himself, and he thinks that his possessions are going to endure forever. Cain, we see that right after this. One of the first sons of Adam and Eve builds a city, names it after his son, trying to establish, trying to extend across the face of the earth for themselves, not for God. God's purpose for Adam was that the garden would be extended and that the earth would be populated. The the brilliance and the beauty of the gospel is that the second Adam came to secure what the first Adam failed to secure. The writer of Hebrews tells us that it's still God's intention for man to have dominion. This is the amazing thing. God's original intention to, to take dominion over the earth is still his intention for you and me. The difference is we don't do it ourselves. It's not by just having children populating and cultivating the way that Adam would have done before the fall. Now there has to be someone else. There has to be a second Adam who extends the garden and regains the garden, and that's Jesus. And so the writer of Hebrews says, we don't yet see all things put under man, but we see Jesus who for a little while was made lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor that he by the grace of God might Taste death for everyone, and in tasting death for his people. And I've always loved this thought that when Jesus is crucified, his blood is flowing into the cursed ground. The writer of Hebrews will say that the blood of Jesus cries out from the ground for better things than that of Abel. Abel's blood cried out for judgment, Jesus' blood cries out for mercy. But that blood going into the ground and his body being buried in the tomb. In a sense, is it, it, the picture is that he is redeeming not just people, but all of creation. He is redeeming the cursed ground, the ground out of which man has come. Man has failed to extend the garden. The second Adam has come, and he has secured the new heavens and the new earth. This is why when we come to the book of Revelation, we see a garden paradise. And if we ask, how do we get the new heavens and the new earth? Listen very carefully. It is not by what you do. It is by trusting in the second Adam who has done it all. And if you are in him by faith, and if the chief desire of your heart is to be with him in the new heavens and the new earth, you can rest assured that he has accomplished everything necessary for that. You know, that should be that should be, the singular driving thought of your mind and heart, not how do I pay these bills? How do I get this done? What's going to happen to this? How am I going to do this? How am I going to establish this? The singular thought of our lives should be I need to be in the second Adam and I want to be with the second Adam and I want to see the glories of Jesus and I want to be in heaven and I want to eat from the tree of life and I want to be in paradise with the Lord Jesus forever. That should be the driving focus of our lives. You know, our lives here are just fleeting. They're so momentary. The singular goal should be to be in that garden that has been re- gained by the Lord Jesus, the second Adam. Well... Another purpose was that the garden was to be populated. We often overlook the fact that population was an essential part of God's plan for the purpose of turning the world into the garden. The world was to be full of the image of God. If you could think about this, if Adam had not sinned and he had had descendants and they had had descendants and they had had descendants and millions and billions of unfallen image bearers were filling the globe, think how God would be glorified. His image, untainted by sin, not like us, And the world around us marred that image, but a world managed by unfallen image bearers, reflecting his glory and showing forth his magnificence and his holiness and his goodness and his his blessing. And God intended that man do that at creation. It's interesting that while God does not promise to Christianize the world through reproduction. I do not believe that. He still, even after the fall, works in families. He works covenantally. He, he said to Abraham, I will be a God to you and to your descendants after you, that God will bring about his redemptive work in the world by working in families and saving families, and we're to believe those promises, and we're to trust the covenant-making God, and that's, that has to do with reproduction. It's also interesting, isn't it, that the covenant sign went on the male reproductive organ because corruption now passed generation to generation, that Adam was supposed to bring about God-worshippers, and instead he brought rebels into the world. And so the heart of man needs to be cleansed through a bloody judgment, circumcision. And that's the cross. Jesus goes to the cross. He's circumcised on the cross. He, is, he undergoes a bloody judgment. He is cut away in the judgment of God so that the heart's, of his people and their children can be cleansed by faith. God, even there, is working redemptively and and continuing to bless what he intended at the beginning. And then for those that are barren or like the Apostle Paul have, um, we call the gift of singleness. Um, Doesn't sound like a good gift to a lot of us. Um, But... There are those that Jesus said were eunuchs, and those who made themselves eunuchs, and there's this glorious prophecy in Isaiah, Isaiah um, 56, that even the eunuchs would be fruitful. Believers, by sharing the gospel, are used by God to bring forth spiritual children. The apostle Paul, though single, nevertheless fathered many children through his faithful gospel ministry. He was bringing forth children by preaching the gospel. God even in that sense, takes the idea of population and he invests evangelism in the idea of bringing forth children spiritually to himself. You can see how all that goes back to God's original intention. It takes a much different form than what it was before the fall, but God's plan continues. You can see that God is unraveling these things. Um, The garden was to be cultivated. Work was an essential part uh, purpose of God for man. God hates laziness. Laziness is one of the worst things someone can embrace because God in the beginning made work good, and he created man to work, and he created man and woman to to. to colonize and to develop and to explore and to research and to use the minds that he gave them as image bearers to reflect his goodness and his glory. And the garden was to be cultivated. Adam was to name the animals. He was to see what God had made, and he was to study them, and he was to reflect what they were in naming them. And he was thinking God's thoughts after him as he looked around in God's world, and he interpreted the world around him in which he had been placed by God for God's glory. And all of his work was to be done to bring glory and honor to God. He was to, cultivate. he was to cultivate the garden. Adam was a gardener. He was a zoologist, and he was an architect. He would have done lots of different things had he not fallen, and it would have been magnificent. God's intention was that the garden was to be cultivated. Finally, God's intention was that the garden was to be protected. It's interesting that God doesn't say, I will protect the garden From all evil it's interesting that God doesn't say I will guard the garden God ordains that Satan come into the garden but God told Adam that you are to dress and to keep tend and protect those two words in the Hebrew only appear one other place in the scriptures together and they have to do with the priest in the temple Adam was a priest in the temple And the second that something unclean came in, he was to purge it out. He was to keep the temple holy and clean. The second the evil one came in with his temptation, Adam, as a priest, was meant to protect Eve and to protect the garden and to drive the evil out. That was an essential part of the work that God gave man in the garden. God gave Adam his word. He was a prophet. God God gave Adam a dominion and things to do in naming. He was a king. God gave him a charge to protect the garden. He was a priest. Adam was prophet, priest, and king. Now that's important because the rest of the story of scripture is that God is raising up prophets, priests, and kings to speak his word, to lead his people, to take dominion, and to intercede and sacrifice for the sins of his people. Until Jesus comes. And the second Adam is the prophet, priest, and king of his church. And then everybody who's united to him by faith now, the Bible says that he has made us a kingdom and priest to our God. Now, how does that play out? How, how do we today protect the garden? Let me say this. Remember, I said the church is the garden. You're part of the garden temple. You protect the garden by protecting sound doctrine. You protect the garden by keeping false teaching and false living out of your heart, out of your mind, and out of the church. That's how we protect what God has entrusted to us. Um, We act as prophets, priests, and kings in Jesus. We are all prophets, priests, and kings. Woe to anyone who gives the title priest to somebody that he doesn't give to every other believer. We're all priests. We're all prophets and we're all kings in Jesus. It's very clear in the scriptures. And what God has intended for us to do is to use the gifts he's given us as we've trusted Christ in ministering in his body, intending to, in cultivating work in the church. How do we cultivate the garden temple? How do we do that? We do that by using our gifts in ministering to each other. This is why Paul talks about diversity of gifts and the body needing each other and people ministering to one another and, and protecting what God has entrusted to us. He gives us ministers to help do that. Now, there's one other thing I want us to meditate on as we walk out of this, because I think there's a, as we take the scripture in its widest story, there, is, there are these little clues that we can't restore the garden on our own. None of the good works that we do will ever bring back what we lost in Adam. It'll never reconcile us to God for fellowship. It'll never, um, it'll never help us fulfill the purpose God intended for man at the beginning. And the answer, it's interesting, that when Jesus comes, and right before he suffers, Jesus begins his sufferings in the garden, and he ends his sufferings in the garden. I think that's very intentional. Jesus begins his sufferings in the Garden of Gethsemane, where he has to face the cup of God's wrath that he has to drink for his people, and he essentially does the work that Adam failed to do, and he takes away what Adam brought into the world, and he drinks the bitter fruit of the tree, unlike Adam taking the forbidden fruit from the tree, and he hangs on the tree, and he is cursed, and he is made like a barren wilderness under the wrath of God. The fruitful Lord Jesus, who is described as a, a green branch, a fruitful vine, is made a wilderness on the cross. And then he's buried, John tells us, in a garden tomb. And I love when Mary Magdalene is looking for him after his resurrection. John gives us that little illusion. He says, she supposing him to have been the gardener. I love that. He is the gardener. He's the one that planted the garden in the beginning. He is the heavenly gardener. He is the gardener of our souls. Have you ever thought about your soul that way? Jesus is the heavenly gardener of your soul. He tends it. He he, he gets the weeds out of it. He gets the thorns out of it. He purifies it. He develops it. He makes you beautiful by his grace. Through his death and his resurrection, Jesus is the heavenly gardener who is even now bringing about the renewal of all things. We come to the last two chapters in Revelation, and that's the picture. It's the church. She's coming down out of heaven as a bride adorned for her husband, and she's a fruitful garden, and she's described as a city made of Gold, the things that were in the garden. Precious stones, those things that were in the garden. And there's a river flowing out from the throne of the Lord Jesus. It's the Holy Spirit. And and the church is drinking from that river constantly, and it's watering the garden. And the tree of life is there on every side. And its leaves are for the healing of the nations. And it's the church with Christ, the heavenly gardener, walking in the cool of the day, I hope that these thoughts will stir you up to consider what God originally intended for man, what we lost in the fall, what God is restoring by grace. I hope that you are trusting the Lord Jesus. If you are trusting him by faith, if you have taken hold of him and said, I need you to be the restorer of my soul. I need you to restore the barren wilderness of my soul. He will do that. And he will do it in such a way that you will see something of the magnificent hope of being with him in glory, when he will lavish all of his blessing on his people, when he will dwell with them forever in the new heavens and the new earth. if you are a believer and you are in a barren place and you are struggling because you're in a, a place of despondency or complacency, these are the things to meditate on. These are the things that will stir up your souls. God wants to stir up our minds and hearts with these truths. He wants us to long for something higher and better that he has secured for us in Jesus. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear this morning what the Spirit says to the church. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you and your Son together would be the gardener of our souls, that you would be pruning that you would be making us bring forth fruit. We pray, our God, that you would be making us to be a people that long for that day when we will be in paradise. Lord Jesus, we pray that not one person in this room, young or old, would leave this place without trusting and believing and resting and hoping in Jesus Christ. Father, we pray that you would make us to see all that he, as a second Adam, has done for us, that we would get a greater uh sight of all that you have accomplished and all that awaits those who are trusting in him alone. Father, have mercy on us and do what you alone can do in our souls. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.